Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Katie. I'm excited to share we have a new patron. Awesome. I think this is our third Sarah. We have another Sarah. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, we might have more than one. Yep. (laughs) She found uh, Kindreds through one of our mutual friends, Carrie, and she said, I'm so excited to help support the show. I love being connected to other strong women of faith who are working toward making positive change in the world. Oh, I love that. It's very lovely. So if you want to join Sarah in helping us make Kindreds, head over to patreon.com slash Kindreds and sign up today. And we also have a really exciting announcement at the end of the episode about what's coming up next on Kindreds. So yes. make sure you stick around to the end. Yeah, so exciting. All right, for today, we are taking on a super big topic. Who Jesus is to us. It's like a paper that would have been assigned to us by church. (laughs) Right, by church. (laughs) Yeah. So some call him their savior, some call him the Messiah, and some think of him more like one of my favorite quotes from Gilmore Girls from Paris Geller, the nice Jewish kid with a hammer. So, you know, somewhere in between all of those, I'm really excited yeah. to dive into this because I know we have a whole lot of thoughts and probably some confessions to make on this topic. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should go back to when we were kids and talk about when we first were introduced to Jesus and what we learned about him. So tell me about those early memories that you have. First of all, I just want to say that this feels like old school kindreds, the way we Uh used to set up a lot of our conversations in the beginning was like, what were your early memories of XYZ in the church? And and now, how do you feel about it today? Well, it's true. It's true. It's appropriate for this topic, I think. Yeah, it really is. We have to go back to the beginning, I think. So I think my first introduction of Jesus is probably how most children or a lot of children brought up in Christianity begin their own relationships with Jesus, with baby Jesus in the manger. Of course. It's just the Christmas story. It's part of our secular culture, too. It's everywhere in the United States in December. And it's just this easy, romantic, kind of fun story to tell. There's angels and animals and a star. We had a nativity growing up. So I was always very aware of baby Jesus. As I got older and started learning more in church, I'm not sure that I fully understood Jesus in a historical context at all. As someone who actually lived, Mm -hmm. I mainly saw Jesus as the hero of a story that I heard parts of every week at church. And I remember one vacation Bible school when I was six or seven. The theme was Jesus, the fisher of men. And I think that was when I first realized that, oh, baby Jesus is also a grown-up too. (laughs) Not just a baby. Like, it's the same person. Oh, okay. Uh And we did all these cute arts and crafts around the theme of Jesus fishing for his disciples, basically. And later, I think we learned the stories of Jesus's miracles, like, Mostly turning water to wine, feeding the thousand, bringing Lazarus back from the dead. And I was thinking about this. There was a lot of emphasis on his works and less on his teachings, Hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of messaging about how Jesus was perfect or like he lived a perfect life. And those are really the things that stick out in my memory. I would say learning about the death and resurrection came a lot later when I was a teenager and it was also probably when I was a teenager that I learned about some, started to learn some of the teachings, mostly 
the Last Supper, I think, learning about the Sacrament of Communion, and then like the content of the Sermon of the Mount. But that's pretty much it. So I'm curious, Katie, what about you? What are your earliest memories of Jesus? Oh, gosh, just thinking about the way that we teach Bible to kids. And I think I know watch these very complex movies and things. Mm-hmm. And there's not a whole lot of information about Jesus, and yet we still manage to not show that in a cohesive way. Yeah, it's just yeah. kind of mind-boggling. So I'm not it was surprised. Really interesting. Yeah, it was interesting going back and thinking about this. Like, how did I get introduced to these really complicated things? And it was all through like a fun children's stories, almost talking about it like a fairy tale. Yeah, makes sense that you would kind of. Com- pair it with other stories you were hearing at the time about right. princesses or whatever and just think of that in the same sort of way which yeah is not entirely problematic because there's a lot of symbolism there but anyway I'll yeah. let me well, yes. before I go off on that tangent my memories are a little bit later than yours and I don't think I've talked about this on the show before but I wasn't raised going to church at all I had zero contact with it directly mm-hmm. but because I'm from South Georgia where church is a thing that pretty much everybody else did. Um, Mm. You know, it was around me, but I didn't really know anything about it. And I didn't go to church until I was about nine years old. I write about this in my book, Women Rise Up, that I went to church with my grandmother, Honey, when she was dying from cancer when I was about nine. So I didn't go to Sunday school even then or vacation Bible school. Mm -hmm. So all the exposure that I got was on Sunday mornings in worship service with my grandmother. And I probably was not really paying attention to the sermon, honestly, Mm -hmm. because I was not. So because religion was not something that was ever pushed by my family, and because it was something that all of my friends and classmates were involved in, I had a very genuine interest and fascination in what church was about. So I remember a lot of my friends in elementary school drawing pictures of the cross in art class, you know, like the cross Mm -hmm. with the sunset, and I would Mm -hmm. emulate them. Like I was very much wanting to be part of that, and I made my own little cross from this art set. Do you remember those beads where you could put them in a pattern and then iron them together? Yes, and they would melt. Yes. Yes. So I made a cross from those because I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be part of this culture. So I took on the symbols like the cross and I didn't really know what it meant, but I I wanted to be part of it. So it's a topic for a different time, but I just was always an outsider growing up. I had a lot less money than all the other kids. I was about a foot taller than all the other kids. Mm. We didn't Mm -hmm. go to church like everybody else. So it was more about fitting in for me than anything else. Yeah, I remember the fitting in part really well, especially middle school. That's when a lot of kids were starting to sort of integrate their church lives into their school lives as well. It was just, that's when school started sanctioning things like prayer at the pole, Mm -hmm. at at the flag and stuff like that. And so I remember a lot of that. And I didn't quite have the same feelings of being on the outside, but there definitely was an understanding of who went to what church. Mm -hmm. And so it was very cliquish in that way. And that was weird. And I don't know, welcoming the outsider, that's a message that Jesus preached, you know? And so that might be something like feeling like an outsider and feeling like church is a place where you can join and belong and be yourself. Like that might be something that the church starts to get right on the surface. Mm -hmm. But then it's like once you're in the pressure to conform. Yes. It's like a totally different thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I think we'll get into a little later Christianity being part of the culture. Um, I think that's definitely something we should talk about. But I guess 
I'm curious to know, when were you introduced to the Easter story? Yeah, not for a long time. Easter was was Easter baskets for me mm-hmm. until I was introduced to church with, with my grandmother when she was nine, and I got some of her things. And one of them, she, one of the things she had was this book about Jesus. It wasn't quite a Bible, but it had Bible stories in it for grownups. Mm-hmm. It had all of these illustrations, and of course, Jesus was uh, a white dude. Of course, it, yes. Of course. But I was obsessed. I was really, really interested. I'd never heard these stories before and everyone else seemed to know about them. And I was really drawn to the story of the crucifixion because I had never seen anything like that before. Mm-hmm. If you think about that from a kid's perspective without any context, mm-hmm. it's like straight up gore, like what you wouldn't be allowed yep. to watch on TV. And he's yeah. like practically naked up there. Yeah. You know, so I think I was just fascinated at this very pure level Um, So I thought that that was my first introduction, but then I was thinking back, you have to like go back into memories and then things get triggered. But when I was a few years younger, probably seven, second grade, that time of my life, I was actively evangelized by someone (laughs) for the first time. It was this mom of a kid that I used to be sort of an informal mother's helper for, you know, I would like go over and play with him. And she invited me over on Good Friday, which meant nothing to me. And she Mm -hmm. took the baby Jesus from their nativity and created a little dome cave out of Play-Doh and wrapped him up, put him inside with this Play-Doh stone covering up the entrance. Oh, gosh. Yeah, she was obviously trying to get me to understand the whole Easter story, but I thought the whole thing was ridiculous. Oh, gosh. I, I wonder. I always wonder, like, what do people think is going to happen in those moments? <laughs> I had no context for this. Right. None. And what was the end game? <laughs> like, it just is so. Okay. So I also have a friend's mom's evangelizing story. Okay. Too. This was a thing, apparently. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. So like I was saying, I grew up Methodist. I also had Catholic Presbyterian influences, depending on which grandparent I went to church with that Sunday. But for the most part, it was mainline Protestant in the 90s. So the concept of evangelizing at all, didn't I didn't know it. Mm-hmm. And the understanding of like a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, it was just not a thing I knew anything about. So one time I was invited by a friend from school, I think I was probably nine or 10 years old, to go to her church's Wednesday night service with her family. And I think it was an offshoot of Southern Baptist. It wasn't the main Southern Baptist church in town, but I think it was one. And she invited me under the guise of she was singing in the children's choir that night and she wanted me to come hear her. And it turned out to be an altar call that lasted for hours and I did not know what was going on. I was terrified. They dimmed the lights down. Everyone was kneeling. There were people crying. It was very like this emotional situation. They were playing this music, you know, and had candles. And the preacher kept asking for people to come up and get saved. And I distinctly remember this little boy who was kneeling next to me. And he was probably six years old. Mm. And he was crying. And he got up and went to the altar to have the preacher lay hands on him and get saved. And I'm down there on the floor like, what's going on? Am I supposed to do this? I want to go home. What is saved? I had no idea. I did not go up there. (laughs) Good for you. (laughs) I was paralyzed, honestly. I finally 
you know, they dropped me off at home and I asked my mom, like, what just happened? I told her all about it. And that's basically when I learned about denominational differences. Uh Uh-huh. Right. I just, and that was basically what she said is they're still every, you know, we're all Christians, but we think in different ways and we have different practices. And I didn't, I don't know that I believed her. I just didn't understand. And I remember a lot of talk that night about accepting Jesus into my heart And my mom was like, oh, you don't have to do that. You've been baptized. You're fine. And I just didn't get it. (laughs) And later on, people at school would say things to me like Methodists weren't really Christian or Methodists don't believe the Bible and things like that. And I would just be like, I don't. Yeah, it's really, that's kind of what I meant by the denominational like clickishness that happened. Like there were, it it was definitely there. Hmm. And I guess getting saved was maybe part of that. But getting back to my friend's mom. So later on, I learned that the kids were having a contest in that church of how many people they could bring with them to Wednesday night service. There was like this tally board on the wall. There were prizes. And it turns out that my friend's mom was kind of behind it all because I was too traumatized to go back with her the next time she invited me. And she put her mom on the phone with me. And her mom was like... Well, your mom is divorced, and we just really feel that it's important. You know, we wouldn't be doing our duty as Christians if we didn't make sure that you were being brought up in the church. But we already went to church, and I think they knew that. Not the right church. It wasn't real church. Yeah. So I just feel like if you need to trick people into joining your church, you might want to rethink your values (laughs) is all I'm saying. Yeah. (laughs) You're probably a cult. Yeah, yeah. So that is my story of being evangelized, but it was also my first introduction to the concept of salvation, mm-hmm. I guess. And I'm I'm interested to hear your perspective on this. Oh gosh. It's funny cuz we aren't we aren't even really talking about Jesus that much, but there's so much right. surrounding the right. idea that mm-hmm. we have to dig through all of that to even get into this person. <laughs> Yes, yes. Oh, so salvation was super big where I was. And I also was in a United Methodist Church once I got into church. But all of the young people participated in very, I guess what you would call like ecumenical youth activities that were really housed within the Southern Baptist tradition. So I think Mm -hmm. that that's where we where we overlap. And my my United Methodist Church, I don't know if they would have talked about salvation that way explicitly from the pulpit, but it was certainly part of the youth group culture. Mm. And even according to your mom's uh, definition of Christian, I wouldn't have fit because I also wasn't baptized as a child. Mm. So like, mm-hmm. I definitely wouldn't have belonged anywhere at that point. Um, I didn't get baptized till I was 15 when I wanted to join the church. And I always felt like that may be an outsider too, because most everyone got baptized when they were babies. Now I'm Baptist and we practice believer's baptism and you actually don't do that until you're a teenager so anyway it's just funny how things change depending on what community that you're part of but yeah so let me back up because we diverge on the whole accepting jesus as our lord and savior thing because that was really big in my context same like you once i hit middle school and got connected with youth group that's where i was introduced and fell for that white conservative evangelical theology and what we call substitutionary atonement <laughs> So this is the idea that Jesus died as a stand-in for sinners to be Mm -hmm. saved from eternal damnation. That Mm -hmm. is literally what it means, that 
the idea that every single human being other than Jesus is a sinner and deserving of eternal punishment from God because we've fallen from grace. But Jesus died as a stand-in, as a substitute for us. So, you know, I really thought I was like a horrible person and that I'd made mistakes worthy of this. Like, and I was 13 years old, you know, it's just wild to think about that kind of, um, and to think about the little six-year-old boy, you know, and how that sort of language would come down. I mean, my kid's six. It's just so manipulative. Yeah. So for me in middle school with all that internalized angst and self-hatred that I think most teenagers have, Mm -hmm. you know, it resonated with me. I'm like, oh yeah, of course I'm a horrible person. Of course I need to, I need to be saved by somebody else. And my youth group would say things like this to each other. Well, you suck, but Jesus was great through you. So it was all like, you know, as humans, we were supposed to be wretched. But if we had accepted Jesus and that redeemed us, and then we we could like finally start living meaningful lives was kind of the underpinning of all of that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I was really, I was real glad that Jesus died to save me and I accepted him into my heart and wanted to have a personal relationship with all of that because that was the only framework that I heard. Yeah. And there were so many times when there was that kind of emotional manipulation uh, in these big youth gatherings and you were talking about altar calls. And if folks aren't familiar with that, It's when the preacher, usually there's some other event leading up to it. Like there's a way to get people relaxed and having fun usually. So there's music or skits or, you know, usually the preacher is very entertaining. And so it's, everybody's kind of disarmed by it, right? Like you're pulled in. And then at the end, there's always this turn to, you know, laying out like this whole process. Like I'm, we're all sinners. We're all worthy of. God's eternal punishment, but Jesus died for our sins. And all we have to do is say this prayer to ask Jesus into our heart and then you're saved. So that's what an altar call is. And they usually ask you to come down to the altar at the front Yes, for whatever happens there, like clapping, praying, laying on of hands, whatever. So in case you're not familiar, that's what that means. That is exactly, 100% exactly how it went. Yeah, <laughs> like think of Billy Graham. To, yeah. You know, it's yeah. like the Billy Graham style. So mm-hmm. I was too embarrassed to go down to the front, but I remember, you know, getting saved over and over again and, you know, going to these weekly Sunday youth gatherings and hearing the same message and just kind of mm-hmm. wanting to be part of it over and over again because it was very emotionally charged. You know, like Mm, to to go through that. I used to not really talk about this part of my life because it was really embarrassing to me that I fell for it. But honestly, it's a gift now because I recognize and understand the logic and how people get radicalized for Christ. You know what I mean? Yeah, I definitely know what you mean. And I was also a teenager when the death and resurrection became more influential on my understanding of Jesus. I would say there was less emphasis in my particular church and in my upbringing on getting saved as this thing you actively do. But the message of, what did you call it? Substitutionary atonement. Mm -hmm. Okay. That was definitely something I learned. Like the reason Jesus had to die is because you're so terrible. Right. I definitely (laughs) internalized that uh, the same way, but it was more just like, so now you be grateful and go to church. Mm. And 
I guess I never made that connection of, I never understood how one gets saved. Like, what are the words? And that was the the disconnect for me. I never fully understood it. But I did experience that emotional high, that manipulative emotional high that you're talking about. I relate to that so much. The way you described the religious culture in your area being sort of underpinned with the Southern Baptist Mm -hmm. theology Mm -hmm. and it bleeding into your youth group. Yes, that um, was my experience as well. And I've been hesitant to talk about it on the podcast before, and we don't have time to get into it today, but I do think we should talk about this at some, at some point. Um, I spent my teenage years deeply involved in an evangelical youth ministry Mm -hmm. that the salvation emphasis maybe wasn't there, but the um, emotional highs, the manipulation um, brought on by things like sleep deprivation and um, music and cutting you off from your social circles, um, taking away your phone for the weekend. And those things were definitely part of how I understood feeling connected to Jesus or feeling connected to God had to come from that kind of emotional place. Yes, we should do an expose because we were in part of two different but related ones. And honestly, if it helps anybody not go through that, I feel like it's worth us doing a whole episode just on that. Yeah, I think we probably should. And the reason that I haven't wanted to in the past is because it's something that touched my entire family Mm. and there's a lot of people in my life who are still to this day involved with it Mm. and I just haven't wanted to go there because it's painful I mean I feel like folks can probably tell that this is not a something that we're like excited (laughs) to talk about or we think back on in in positive ways um but yeah I think you're right if it helps people kind of put into context things that they went through and understand better um maybe we should talk about it so let's put it on the calendar i guess (laughs) manipulative manipulative industries (laughs) yeah so back to what you were sharing about how you felt about jesus's death that is 100 percent how i felt as well feeling ashamed and unworthy and sad and like a horrible person that had to cause jesus to die and that definitely wasn't helped by things in the popular culture like do you remember the movie, The Passion of the Christ? Ugh. Yes. Which came out, we were, I was maybe a freshman or sophomore in college. I think it was like 2004. Yeah. The most gruesome and gory depiction of Jesus' death that you could imagine. And it was like this rite of passage in my faith circles. Like, people would ask each other, have you seen The Passion of the Christ yet? Like, it. Like it was this thing you had to go do. You had, if you were a good Christian, you had to go and witness the torture that you caused Jesus by all of your sinning. <laughs> I mean, talk about emotional manipulation. Yeah, you don't need to just think about it. You need to watch it mm-hmm. in detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was grotesque. Yes, yeah, it was. And it was made by Mel Gibson, which is really all you need to know about it. Yeah, and I remember sitting in the theater, and this woman behind us was just sobbing. Which is a completely natural reaction to watching torture on screen. Yes, yes. And I was thinking about this. It stopped before the resurrection. So how do you call it the passion without the resurrection? I don't get it. Like, it wasn't the whole story. So I I wanted to make sure that that was right because that just seemed really messed up to me. 
And I kid you not, they are making a sequel to The Passion of the Christ. Ugh. Passion of the Christ, colon, resurrection. Just what the world needs. <laughs> you wanted to just tell the whole story the first time. Yeah. But then the movie so- would be hours long. Or, like, years long, because that's really what church is, well, telling the story is <laughs> of the death and resurrection over and over and over Did and you over ever go to you... a passion play? Do you know that? Yes. Okay, me too. Okay. We have lots we need to talk about in the future. Yeah, so. I swear. Man, the church's obsession with the, like, violence and and gore of the last moments of, of Jesus, it's something worth exploring. Something else I remember specifically about the way his death and resurrection was framed at that time in my life, a lot of attention was paid to the role of his disciples Mm. in that story. Like who betrayed him, who denied him, who doubted his resurrection, who believed in his resurrection. And there was a lot of emphasis. I don't know if you felt this as well, but there was a lot of emphasis on who are you in this story? Are you the doubter? Are you the betrayer? Are you the loyal believer? Right. And I'm guessing Mary Magdalene was not part of that. Oh, no. Only as like a fallen woman or a, or a prostitute, which as we've talked about before on the podcast wasn't even true. But uh-huh. I do remember there, you know, they, there was acknowledgement that women were the ones who were with him at the time of his death. And they were the ones who he first appeared to after his resurrection. But there was never a connection made to... So maybe this means that women are pretty special to Jesus and actually pretty important to Christian history. And maybe they should even be leaders. Like, that wasn't part of it. Of course not. But they were mentioned. But basically, you know, I guess to summarize, in my early life, growing up in Christianity, Jesus was at times a baby, sometimes a symbol, sometimes a hero, and God's perfect son who I murdered through my sinful nature. <laughs> Just to put a nice bow on it. Yeah. And I mean, that's all very abstract. Totally. I would not say that I felt connected to the actual human Jesus who lived in any way. Mm. So maybe we should talk um, now about how our understandings of Jesus have maybe evolved, what's different or the same, or maybe what was missing from our upbringing. Oh, yeah. Let's get into <laughs> yeah. the, Let's get into the real the real stuff now. So... There's practically nothing about my understanding of Jesus back then that's the same now. Yeah. Um, And that's because at the time, I practically knew nothing about him, just like you said. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of church, evangelical white church culture talks a lot about what Jesus meant. But they don't talk a lot about his life, which which is what you were saying. There wasn't a lot of emphasis on, on what we have recorded. And for me, that changed when I went to college and I started studying religion academically, which was something a lot of folks in my childhood church did not want me to do because they said it would would make me lose my faith. And I guess I kind of did according to their standard of what faith means. But I lost the ignorance and I got something much better in return. So two classes that were very formative for me I took my sophomore year. One was on the historical Jesus. So, so good. And the Mm. other was on the patristic period of Christianity, which is the first 400 years after Jesus died, when it was a bunch of Jewish people trying to figure out what all of this meant for them. So very Mm. like Mm -hmm. the grassrootsy part of the church history. And Mm. that was really the first time I was introduced to the timeline of the formation of the Gospels when they were written um, mm-hmm. the fact that all of the writings attributed to Paul were written 
before there was a gospel. So if you actually read any of the Pauline texts, he doesn't actually talk about Jesus's life because he didn't know him. So the Mm. Gospels came Mm. after that. They were written after. And there were lots that were left out. There were lots and lots of testaments to who Jesus was that didn't get included in the canon of the church. And then there were all of these really fun debates about just exactly who Jesus was. There's all Mm. this, like, nasty infighting for the first few hundred years after he died. And, like, all of these dudes trying to sort it all out you know in writing figuring out what what it means for him to be is he human is he divine is he both what does that mean and what i realized in reading all that was like okay this is not evident in anything like this was created and evolved and our theology is not pulled directly from the bible you know all of these theological concepts like the trinity that emerged over time and changed and were all these councils where they decided this stuff, you know? So there were like winners and losers of theology. And if you won, you were in the canon. And if you lost, you were a heretic. So it's a very (laughs) human history, my friends. And it's very male dominated, obviously. So learning that history really set me free. It also really pissed me off. Yeah. It really pissed me off. But it also set me free because it allowed me into this very expansive space to explore a different way of being part of this really long, rich history of Christianity that had many facets. Mm-hmm. And it can continue to evolve, right? So, like, I didn't have to be so exclusive. I didn't have to be so self-righteous and sure of myself. And that was when I could not, I couldn't find a church anymore. I mean, I couldn't find a place where I was that would embrace this kind of deep thinking and like theological exploration. So I gained a lot and I lost something at the same time because I I couldn't go back home, so to speak. Yep. So another really formative text that I've probably talked about on this show before was, um, Dolores Williams' book, Sisters in the Wilderness, yes, which was her doctoral dissertation about Black women's oppressive roles as surrogates for white women. Mm-hmm. And I probably talked about Sarai and Hagar in Genesis yeah. as part of that, but she also argues that we're not saved by the murder of Christ and that there's actually nothing redemptive about the cross at all. Mm, and she says, yeah, that's huge, right? Because like that, the substitutionary yeah. atonement is central for so many folks yeah. that Jesus died to save us. And she writes, black women cannot forget the cross, but neither can they glorify it. To do so is to glorify suffering and to render their exploitation sacred. To do so is to glorify the sin of defilement. Mm-hmm. So I was like, whoa, wait a second. Mm-hmm. So we don't even have to have the cross here? Like, or we have to have it as a symbol of human human beings being at their most vicious and vile toward one another. Right. Yes. Right. And like that the murder of Christ doesn't have to be beautiful or sacrificial or even the center of our faith tradition. Right. Like that was very liberating for me. And I know that that text is not yeah. for me as a white woman because she's really writing to black women. But just having the possibility of... The way that Jesus lived his life and the way that we understood it and the way that he centered people who are marginalized, that that was the salvific part of what he came to do, not Mm. come to die and be murdered by the Roman government. Like, 
So all of that is to say, you know, that academic exploration was very spiritual for me at the same time. Mm-hmm. And just getting me off the hook of feeling like what we're asked to do is just to be self-sacrificial like Jesus was all the time. Like that's not necessarily the call. Yeah. So what about you? Oh my gosh. So I think what you were saying right now is important on so many levels. And what's really jumping out at me is, yes, the way that we white Western Christians tend to talk about and understand suffering and sacrifice as this moral good. Mm -hmm. And the way we impose it as the one true understanding of the message of the Gospels or the life of Jesus, it's just so warped when you consider that white people have literally caused the suffering and sacrifice of so many peoples throughout time often in the name of Jesus, Mm. word for word, saying to them, suffering is good. Sacrifice is good. They are both good and holy. Don't you want to be like Jesus while we oppress you? Right. Oh, it's so blasphemous. (laughs) It is. And I think the passage that you shared from Sisters in the Wilderness, it really gets at something that we really don't like talking about in Christian spaces, and we've made it taboo, that there are many ways to interpret and understand Jesus in Scripture. And they're not all positive, and they probably all have some truth to them. Right. I've been reading this book called Decolonizing Evangelicalism by Dr. Randy Woodley, who I mentioned before in one of our Kindred's picks on Hay Indigenous Center for Earth Justice and uh, Bo Sanders. And in this book, they talk about other ways of thinking about Jesus through a lens that is anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist. And they say that our Christian tendency to say, There's only one true way to think about Jesus, and oh, also, it just happens to be the way that I think about Jesus. (laughs) It really just functions to support empire and colonization throughout time. And I want to read this passage from the book. I'm going to paraphrase a bit because it's long. Jesus, as seen through an evangelical or imperial lens, is the savior of the world and one's own personal Lord and Savior. This particular theological lens has formed much of the basis of modern Western evangelical Christianity and its mission. In modern evangelicalism, this very abstract narrative of Christ was used as a colonizing force, promoting imperial Christianity and removing the freedoms of many, many people, including indigenous people all over the world. But to a degree, this narrow reading of Jesus as simply the Savior limits everyone's freedom. Mm. We try to control Jesus by limiting our theological image of him, and people who try to live for Jesus end up with a very limited imagination concerning what Creator expects and what is possible in our world. (laughs) The reason I wanted to share that is because it's really helping me kind of understand where we are right now in terms of white Christian nationalism and how we got here and its influence on our politics and our society at large Mm -hmm. and the world. Mm -hmm. And they go on to suggest in the book that to counter this, anytime we think we know something for certain about Jesus or God, anytime we assert that one particular theology is right and true, Our alarm bells should go off, Mm -hmm. and we should challenge that assumption within ourselves. And they say that we should expose ourselves to many different theologies, especially non-white, non-Western perspectives, to learn that there's truth in all of them. 
And I think this goes along with what you were saying earlier about a more expansive understanding of Jesus setting you free. Mm-hmm. I really feel that too. And you talked earlier about feeling really sure and exclusive and self-righteous in your thinking before. And that resonated with me a lot. I was too. And looking back over my life, that is my very least favorite version mm-hmm. of myself. Mm-hmm. That version of me in my like late teens, early 20s, mm-hmm. when I was deeply, deeply entrenched in that either or, us versus them, saved or not saved, evangelical thinking. Oh, yes, the same. That's when I think of myself as being sinful, like using that language, that is what mm-hmm. I think of is that yes. closed mindedness being so, so self-assured that I was right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and when I think of being saved, honestly, I think of being saved from that, that narrow way of thinking Mm -hmm. and having my heart opened up to the mystery Mm -hmm. of the divine that none of us can ever fully know. I am so thankful that I was saved from that. I love the way you put that. That is a sermon in and of itself. I'm just going to say that. (laughs) Um, and you know, I was, So it was my mid to late 20s when I started to open myself up to really questioning the things I thought I knew. And my first intro to the idea that Jesus lived and died to save humanity, okay, but whether you have a relationship or accept him as your Lord and Savior is irrelevant, was the book, did you read this, Love Wins by Rob Bell? I don't know. I've read a little bit of Rob Bell. He was, I think I was kind of past that, but I can see how he's very helpful for folks making that transition. Yes, that is how, yes, that's how I would put it. And it's been years since I read it. He, his moment, it was 2010, 2012 in that area. And I can't vouch for how it's held up since I read it. It, he was a white guy. He wrote it in 2012, Mm -hmm. but it did it did help provide that transition for opening me up to see Jesus in a more expansive way. And so this is the summary for folks who haven't read it. First, I believe that Jesus's story is first and foremost about the love of God for every single one of us. It is a stunning, beautiful, expansive love, and it's for everybody everywhere. A staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will be will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. <laughs> it's been clearly communicated to many that this belief is a central truth of the Christian faith, and to reject it is, in essence, to reject Jesus. This is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus's message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. And 26-year-old Ashley was fully, like, mind-blown by that idea. <laughs> yeah. And yet it seems so obvious when you think Kinda about it. Kind of basic. Yeah? Yeah. But the church does yeah. a lot to really push us away from that interpretation. Yeah. Well, and they, they give you your reality, right? Like, yeah. Jesus yeah. doesn't talk about hell. That is not a concept that's in scripture. And yet yeah. that is now fully ingrained in white evangelicalism. You know, yeah. that's something we need to be saved from. And it's a completely fear-based way of looking at the world rather than a love-based way. And the passage you read reminded me a little bit of Richard Rohr's book, The Universal Christ, which I talked about yes. at some point. You know, and I... I now see Jesus as someone who pieced together the realms of the physical and the ethereal. Mm-hmm. And in that way, I do see him as fully divine and fully human because so on the divine side, he was someone who understood 
the realms beyond what we can see and and hear and touch mm-hmm. and feel. Like if you're someone who likes thinking about other dimensions, you know, he really understood that and how we're all yeah. interconnected with each other. You know, yeah. he says what you do to the least of these, you do to me. He didn't mean like me as in as in like God set apart, like how we treat each other yeah. connects with everybody else. So I think he was a mystic. That might be anachronistic to say, but um, there's a lot of mystical teaching in what in what he shares, at, at least yeah. what's captured in some of the gospels that we have. And Mary Magdalene was the first one who understood it. Like, she got yeah. it. She understood what he was saying all along. So that's why she's so important, or one of many reasons. And yeah. on the fu- other, like, fully human side, he was completely rooted in a historic place and time. He was a faithful Jew, which I think we also forget mm-hmm. that he was not a mm-hmm. Christian. He was mm-hmm. a Jew. And he was an embodied human who did what he could to alleviate the suffering of people right in front of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he pushed back against oppressive powers quietly, loudly, and he knew that the world could be so much better than it was. Mm-hmm. And his ministry was costly. It cost him his life, which is another thing we don't talk about, you know, like mm-hmm. that's why he was murdered because what he was preaching was radical and it upset the status quo. We didn't kill him. Empire did. Right. I mean, <laughs> yes, exactly. It was a victim of, yeah. of the empire. So I think because of that upbringing that I had, Jesus will always be formative for me. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'll ever, you know, be able to let go or want to let go fully of the gospel story, because he's always going to be my first path into exploring the divine and the spirit. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was a little kid and felt that inkling to just want to learn more. And yet at the same time, I don't think that he would demand that I only follow his particular teachings that we have. Yeah. Because I believe like the United Church of Christ says that God is still speaking. I totally agree. And I'm so glad you mentioned that Jesus was a real embodied human who lived in a specific time and place. Mm -hmm. You're right. That is not something we talk about. We don't emphasize that. And the last thing I want to share on this episode is something that is still evolving for me, or maybe like you said, that God is still speaking to me. And it's just that, that Jesus was a real human who lived in a body. And just like we are, Mm -hmm. we're real humans that live in bodies. He was also God, but he was also us. You know, and this is all part of the embodiment conversation that we started a few episodes ago. And I think it's our tendency and certainly how I was raised to elevate Christ the Savior over Jesus the man, Mm -hmm. which is a real shame and a real dishonor to Jesus the man, I think. And might we consider that we honor Jesus the man and our shared humanity when we honor our own bodies. And I don't mean that in the purity culture way of, you know, dress modestly and save sex for marriage, like honor your body. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we take care of our bodies, when we recognize our human softness and tenderness and limitations and our physicality and like when we, when we just honor our bodies. Mm -hmm. So I want to share this word from an Instagram account that is really transforming my faith called Black Liturgies. Mm-hmm. Are, are you familiar with Black Liturgies? Yes. The account author is Cole Arthur Riley. 
And her bio at blackliturgist.com says that she is a writer, liturgist, speaker, seeking a deeply contemplative life marked by embodiment and emotion. Mm. She is the founder and writer of Black Liturgies, a project seeking to integrate concepts of dignity, lament, rage, justice, rest, and liberation with the practice of written prayer. Hmm. And this recent Instagram post has really stayed with me. I bookmarked it and I look at it from time to time. So first she quotes scripture, the story from Mark four, when Jesus calms the storm and Christ was inside the boat, sleeping with his head on a pillow. (laughs) And then the next slide is a prayer. God who slept, what stability of heart did you possess that allowed you to find a pillow and take a nap as your boat was tossed dangerously by the waves and storm? Would you grant us that same assurance and attention to our bodies, knowing that our rescue does not depend on our exhaustion? Enhance our communal callings toward unapologetic rest, that we would never dare to enslave another by the same chains of busyness and bodily neglect that chain us. We are the kind of tired that gives us over to ugliness and despair. Today, let our tiredness be redeemed into that which reminds us that we are human and beautiful and have the mysterious power of regeneration wrapped up in our bones. And the beauty of humanness is this. We were made to rest that we may dream. I never heard that preached from a pulpit in a white church. Let me tell you. (laughs) No. And just the beauty of that and the sacredness of that. Yeah. Just so far extends beyond this little tiny message that you and I heard. And I'm yeah. just so grateful for the ways that people continue to expand this liberation story mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for right now. Yep. We need more of that. Mm. I'm gonna go I'm gonna go read this. It's something I need to revisit from time to time too. Maybe we can share this on our Instagram account too. Um, yeah. So folks yeah, can look at definitely. it or at least find, find this account. Yeah. Once I figure out how to repost, I will certainly do that. <laughs> we will work on the back end of things, but we will get it maybe before this episode comes out. Um, okay. So I promise we have some really exciting news. Ashley, do you want to share? I can't believe I'm the one that gets to share Yay, this. Okay. So y'all remember our book of longings episode that we did a few months ago. I guess this was last summer. On our next episode, we will be interviewing author Sue Monk Kidd about the Book of Longings, which is soon to be released in paperback. And of course, we will ask for her take on faith, feminism, and friendship too. Oh my god! I can't wait. I'm so excited. I'm gonna. <laughs> How did this happen? Need to take some deep breaths before that. <laughs> I know. I know, and some rest, I guess. Yes. So I can't wait. That's going to be so much fun. So I will talk with you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you.